The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, a major space conference is taking place today, which will see some of the leading experts in the field come together to discuss Ireland's space economy and what needs to be done to ensure we don't get left behind when it comes to global development. I'm joined now by Lorraine Hanlon, Professor of Astronomy and Director of Sea Space at University College Dublin, and by Malcolm MacDonald, Director and Founder of the Applied Space Technology Lab at the University of Strathclyde, Vice Chair of the UK Space Agency's Space Technology Advisory Committee, and also a visiting professor at University College Dublin. Good morning and welcome to you both. Morning. Now, I'll go to you first, Lorraine, because when we talk about Ireland's space industry or space programme, we don't see launch pads on the Curra and rockets heading into the skies. So what are we at? We have a very vibrant space sector in Ireland. We have more than 90 companies who participate in um, programmes with the European Space Agency, for example, developing new technologies to help satellites orient themselves in space, to help them communicate better. So it's an incredible success story that our small businesses mainly have grown from about uh, 30 companies 20 years ago to more than 90 companies today. It's a growing sector. The government has a strategy for space enterprise to even double those numbers again. So it's ambitious, but the growth that's expected globally is enormous. So we do have to keep investing and keep that momentum okay, going. Okay, so so we are making components and we'll talk about any uh, individual satellites we might be responsible for. But if I was to take my space bicycle and go and tour the thousands of satellites that are currently orbiting the Earth, uh, uh, where might we find Irish components? In fact, there are over 100 satellites that I'm aware of that have an Irish component called a gyroscope. Um, and that's made by an Irish company called Inna Labs out in Blanchardstown. And there is a big fleet called uh, Planet Lab Doves. And they're all using uh, Inna Labs Irish technology on board to help them orient in space. Now, gyroscopes have been around since, well, I don't know, the 19th, no, the 17th century, probably. Um, and people, as a, as a child, I had one uh, that was able to spin like a top. Um, so what is innovative about the Irish gyroscope? Space is a really tough environment for components to survive in. And one of the key failure modes of satellites is their gyroscopes. We have lost many space science missions because gyroscopes have failed, even when you have four or six or eight of them on board. These are used to orientate the satellite. So if it goes the wrong way, maybe it loses its solar power because it's facing the wrong way. and you can't communicate uh, anymore. The antenna isn't pointing towards you. So what Inalabs have done is come up with a very clever, innovative solution um, that's obviously in demand because it's such a vulnerable component. I remember last year we were reporting on a a satellite that uh, was an Irish satellite that went up. I think it was designed by by students and yourself at the helm. Um, the, the, The... the satellite, though, I expected something, you know, maybe the size, half the size of the room. It wasn't like that at all. It no, was tiny. It's the size of a juice carton, um, a bit bigger. And uh, But this is the joy of space that we can benefit from all the miniaturization that's happening in electronics and components and sensor technology to do things. We can't do everything in a small satellite, of course, but we can do a lot more than we could have even 10 years ago dreamed of. And the the interesting thing for us from a science and from a research point of view 
is they enable university groups who aren't part of a big space programme to actually develop that capability mm-hmm. in-house. Now, when you talk about a satellite that's the size of a juice carton, um, how would that compare, say, to the size of one of Elon Musk's Starlink satellites? So they are kind of washing machine sized. Okay. Um, they're not huge yes, again. They're not huge either. Yeah, it's it really is a growing trend that you can distribute your, your, your processing, you can distribute your coverage of the sky over many small satellites rather than having one single large. Now, you may have seen that report. I think it was yesterday uh, I saw it where... A NASA a vessel had narrowly missed some Russian space junk. Is it getting very crowded up there? So it is getting crowded in low Earth orbit in particular. Um, it's still a lot of space, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think more and more the space sector globally, it's, there's a big push to make it more sustainable from the point of view of responsible so that you have to take care of your own dirt and, and, and yeah. have a plan and to get rid of it. And how quickly does something become dirt? If you have, say, a geostationary satellite um, and it's powered by solar power, I mean... How does it reach the end of its life? So so geostationary is very tricky because it's very high up and it will stay there for a very long time. But Low Earth you want it to keep working, but does it, it yeah, stop so working? It, it may run out of, for example, components may fail like the gyroscopes. You yeah. can't control it anymore. At geostationary, it will stay there for a long time. Low Earth orbit, where AirSat-1 is, for example, around 500 kilometres, that's those spacecraft will often re-enter maybe after 10, 15 mm. years. But now there's new legislation where they need to be brought down after five years once they go out of operation. Five years <laughs> after they yes, stop they operating, ha- they have after to be, their useful life. Yes, exactly. And how is that done? So uh, there's all these new ideas and really exciting companies that are coming out with clever ideas to, to have propellant on board enough to push them back down into the atmosphere and then they re-enter. There are plans to capture um, junk, space junk, and and bring it back down in a kind of net. Um, So there's lots of activity globally in in trying to solve this space junk problem because, you know, if you inadvertently have a collision, you create thousands more pieces of space junk and they're all going to sit up there as well. Yeah. And, you know, if you hit some even small piece of junk at speed, it can be catastrophic for absolutely. your piece of equipment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have we <coughs> any known uh, destructions that have happened of valuable kit? Malcolm? Yeah, so there's been a number of um, impacts detected. There's probably been more that haven't been detected, but I mean, even a very small, you know, a paint flake um, it's travelling at seven and a half, eight kilometres per second when it hits your spacecraft and it'll just go straight through. And a yeah. lot of the time, it might go straight through your spacecraft. It might not do any damage. It might impact the solar panels, reduce the amount of power you get on board, or you can be really unlucky and it just destroys your spacecraft. Um, but there have been a number of occasions where we've had whole spacecraft, like we nearly saw yesterday, that have actually collided and then you get they become a reservoir of yeah. lots of small parts and you get a cascading effect then. Now, one of the aspects of, say, Formula One racing, um, the cars are going at up to 300 kilometres an hour, perhaps a little bit beyond that, but they're all going in the same direction. Yeah. So therefore, if they have a collision, the actual collision might be a 20 kilometre an hour collision rather than 300 plus 300 yeah. if they were actually heading for each other. Um, what about the variability of satellite orbits? Yeah, so a lot of the, the really important orbits, spacecraft tend to be travelling in roughly similar directions, but they're not all travelling in the same direction. 
Um, and so you will have occasions where it's not seven and a half kilometres, it's double that. It's you know, 14, 15, 16 kilometres per second where they're impacting each other. Um, wow. But even when the, the speeds are relatively low for space, they're still very, very fast. Do satellites then always go in a clockwise or anti-clockwise direction? Well, or can you determine they which can way go, they go? They can go in any direction. Any direction. They want. Um, but they tend to go in certain fixed directions, particularly in low Earth orbit, because of the way we want to view the Earth underneath them. So when you're in low Earth orbit, you tend to be looking down at the Earth. You tend to want to view the Earth in certain lighting conditions. So you tend to go in certain orbits. So, for example, there's a, a sun-synchronous orbit, very slightly retrograde. That's a very popular orbit. Put lots of spacecraft into there. Um, what the Copernicus, the big Earth Observation Programme goes there. Um, and they're all travelling in roughly the same direction at the same time. Now, um, Scotland has a really effective and successful space industry. How? Well, I would, I would say there's been a lot of luck, a lot of good timing. A lot of um, people uh, actually are employed. In yeah, this so there's about 8,500 people now employed in the Scottish space sector, about 180 companies. Um, just a decade ago, 2014, um, at University of Strathclyde, we worked with Clyde Space, UK Space Agency, um, and the two governments, the UK and Scottish government, to launch what was Scotland's first satellite. Now today, Glasgow builds more satellites than anywhere else in Europe. So in less than a decade, we've went from a standing start to dominating the spacecraft building. And what Europe. sort of missions are those satellites designed for? Everything and anything from Earth observation, communications, technology demonstration missions... Um, so a whole range of different things, but they tend to be small satellites, very similar to what Airsat was built one, yeah. Airsat, very similar to Airsat, what was built at UCD. So that gives us the volume that we can build. We're not building massive spacecraft; but we're building lots of very small ones, standardised components that allows very rapid build and relatively low cost mm. access to space. I mean, you refer to all of these as spacecraft, and of course, it's hard to. Imagine, given all the sci-fi we've watched over the years, that a milk carton <laughs> is yeah. a spacecraft, but that's that's the yeah, truth of it. But your phone is a computer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so in, in terms of how uh, you might help us to develop further our space industry. Yeah, so really in that decade since we built that first satellite, we've worked with the Scottish government, with the local industry, to build that collaborative environment to build a sustainable space sector, both working with the European Space Agency, but also commercial partners around the world. And what we're looking to do is to support the team at UCD to do something similar here in Ireland, not to copy what we've done, not to copy what's happening elsewhere, to build something distinctly Irish that makes the cake bigger rather than trying to poach capability from elsewhere in Europe because there's fantastic capability here and what we want to do is build on that, build on that through collaboration so we can both grow our space sector, employ more people and deliver all the great services that space offers. Now, Lorraine, we're all told that we are using AI and we didn't even know it. You know, when you get things like predictive text, you're writing something, that's kind of AI, uh, maybe not as sophisticated as ChatGPT and the other AI uh, apps that are now available to us. Um, probably we're all using space as well. Uh, GPS, we'd say, yes, we know we're using space. Um, receiving satellite television, yes, we know we're using space. Where else might the ordinary person en enjoy help from space? Certainly in terms of um, weather forecasting and prediction, satellites have always been important from the early days, but the, the cadence, the frequency of the updates that are coming, the, the quality of the information that's feeding into our forecasting models is just transformed these days by uh, what satellites are able to deliver. 
um, for sure mapping and as you said, navigation. I kind of think of it like the early days of aviation or even radio broadcasting. You know, we have to start building all this infrastructure. We've got these satellites now and now it's about bringing the services to bear from that uh, infrastructure that we've got in space. Um, So I think what's really going to turn around uh, with the satellites we have, the data torrent from the Earth observation satellites that Malcolm mentioned is huge. And, And it's been a challenge for people who don't work in the space sector, who work in public services, in the OPW, in, in, in the Marine Institute, in Geological Survey, to understand how to bring all those data streams which are really capable into their normal process. So, for example, with radar satellites now, you can detect millimetre shifts in land. Okay, so if you're monitoring critical infrastructure like the railway network, having that information at your disposal helps you plan uh, early for any landslides that might happen or damage to the railway infrastructure. So I think it's now we're beginning to have the the computer power, the models to get the data down and use it every day. Big Brother's definitely watching us, especially if you're a farmer and you're trying to maybe grow more than the EU is allowing you. You're outside, unhappily outside the EU, Malcolm. But that kind of thing, you know, being able to monitor exactly what every farmer is doing. Well, yeah, but at the same time, Agritech has benefited hugely from satellite services and satellite data. The fact that we can now grow crops more efficiently with less fertilizer, we can do it in a more environmentally friendly way. You know, the connected the connected tractor is such a big thing. So even before you've left the house in the morning, you've benefited from satellite services in your cereal or your toast or whatever you have for breakfast. So space has been really critical there. And I wouldn't think of it too much in terms of Big Brother is watching because a lot of the, the spatial resolution, the detail we can see within the satellite images, it's really difficult to see there's a person there. Yeah. It's really what's happening in that field or that field over there. So you can differentiate, oh, that area is quite green, that area is not as green. And that tells us things when we process that data in terms of the crop and how healthy it is. And it allows the farmer to be more sustainable in how they grow mm. their vegetables. I suppose it depends who gets access to the uh, all the information. I mean, I see that uh, yellow Mercedes is outside that woman's house again. Are they having an affair? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But again, one of the great things of space is it's democratised access to that knowledge because everybody now knows what's happening. <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, Malcolm MacDonald, who's director and founder of the Applied Space Technology Lab at the University of Strathclyde uh, and much more, as well as being a visiting professor at UCD. And Lorraine Hanlon, professor of astronomy and director of Seaspace at UCD. Thank you both very much Thank for you. joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.